So we, uh, we experienced a little uh, spiritual warfare during uh, Oh Come to the Altar. You notice that, right? When we start saying about Jesus as Savior, it goes out. That's, you, you didn't believe spiritual warfare exists. There it is, right there. We're glad that you're with us tonight, and uh, tonight we're continuing our series in Overcome, and we're discussing tonight a topic that I know no one in this room relates to, uh, and that's temptation, right? None of you relate to that, uh, so it's going to be a topic. It's not going to be a really hit home. But when I say that, right, when I say temptation, every single one of you in this room is recalling something to your mind. You're thinking about something even right now, like, yeah, I really struggle with this. It's really hard for me to say no to this. It's really hard for me not to think like this. Whatever it may be, you're calling it to mind because temptation is a daily occurrence, right? Temptation happens when you go to lunch and the waiter or the waitress says, would you like fries or fruit? Right? This is the worst question of all time. I am powerless to this temptation. I know she's going to judge me. I know whoever I'm eating with is going to judge me. I can't choose fruit. I know I should, but I can't because fries are delicious. Right? There's temptation in your workplace. There's temptation in relationships. There's temptation on Friday night and Saturday night. There's temptation to kind of cut a corner or to cheat a little bit or to do this in order to get ahead and achieve what you want to achieve in life. There's temptation on that button that says buy now with one click on Amazon, right? That's so dangerous. You're like, it's just one click. It's like, I don't even have to go through the whole step. There's temptation everywhere. All of us in this room are tempted in different ways and by different things. And we're tempted in small ways that we either overlook or we ignore, maybe we don't even notice. And we're tempted in large ways, things that are actually concerning, things that we know if we continue to go down this road, it could lead to destruction. You see, temptation plays into your desires, right? You're tempted by the things that you desire, or maybe an exaggeration of the things that you desire, manipulation of the things that you desire, right? If you are not an animal person, and you don't like animals, and, and you walk through the, the farmer's market on Saturday here in Brickell, and they have that little booth with the dogs, and they're these cute little puppies, and these tiny little cages, and they look so sad, and they need a home, you're going to walk right by and not even care, because you don't like animals. But if you're a dog person, it may be your fourth dog. Who knows, right? In college, this is not even a lie, this is, I'm, totally truthful. In college, I told my friends, this was later as I made many, many mistakes in this area, I told my friends, I said, do not let me go to pet supermarket. Because if I go to pet supermarket, I will come home with a pet. It happened almost every single time. Let me tell you what I had in college. In college, I had a snake. I don't even like snakes. I'm kind of scared of snakes, but somehow I got convinced to buy a snake. I had a dog. Bad decision. That lasted eight months. Had to figure out somebody else to take care of the dog. That was not a good idea. I had a 100-gallon fish tank. That was actually pretty cool. I had a terrarium. Some of you don't even know what a terrarium is. Okay? Terrarium is like a whole ecosystem. Fish, lizards, frogs had that. That lasted a month. I actually took it back and returned it as the whole case with the animals inside of it. I even had rats. That's not, I'm like not even joking. This is how bad my power is to say no to anyone working at pet supermarket. I had somebody convince me that rats are better than hamsters. So I said, okay, we'll get a couple rats. So we had rats in our apartment until one of the rats gave my friends ringworm, and then we had to get rid of the rats. You know, it was like not a good idea. You know, I grew up, I wanted to own a zoo. So like you walk into a pet supermarket, it's all these animals, and it seems pretty affordable, so we'll get them. I and mean, what can go wrong? Right? We're all tempted by the things that we desire, something inside of us that we want or we crave or we believe that we need. And, and temptation is a lot like a rat trap. Here's how it works. 
Temptation does not work like if you've ever caught rats before, you've had rats in an attic or whatever, you don't take the trap and open it up and just put it in the attic and expect to catch a rat. That's not how it works, right? You have to put peanut butter, or if you're a rat catcher pro, peanut butter with bacon, because they love that. You put it in the little cylinder in there, you open it up, you load it, you put it in the, fr- in the attic, and you are going to catch a rat, because here's what's going to happen. If you just put the trap up there with nothing inside of it, the rat's not even going to notice it, you're not going to catch a rat. But if you put something the rat desires, if you put some peanut butter and some bacon in there, the rat's going to come over to the trap. It's going to be cautious. It's going to taste a little bit, pull away. Taste a little bit more, pull away. And then as it begins to taste the peanut butter and the bacon and it realizes this is something that it really wants, something that it really desires, it's going full in. And as it comes in, it's going to step on that plate and no more rat. And that's how temptation works, right? That's how temptation works. There's something you desire and it's out there. It's, it's, it's skewed, it's manipulated, you know it's not good, you know you shouldn't indulge, but you take a little bit of a taste. You back up because you're cautious. Take a little bit of a taste again, you back up. And as you begin to kind of step into the water a bit, as you begin to taste a little bit of the peanut butter, eventually you step all the way in and then snap. It brings about destruction. You see, temptation is dangerous, but it is so hard to resist temptation, right? It is so hard to say no. It is so hard to change the patterns of our life. It is so hard to reject that thing because we really want it. We think that it will bring flourishing. And sometimes in our mind, we know that it's not good, but it's so hard to say no. And tonight, as we're in episode three of of our second season of Overcome, we're looking at the life of of Joseph, and we're going to be talking about temptation and dealing with this question, which is a question that all of us ask constantly. How do I overcome temptation? Last week we saw that that Joseph was with his brothers and it didn't go very well. His brothers hate him. Joseph has been given the fortune. He's been given the coat. His dad loves him. His dad doesn't love everybody else. And so his brothers, as they're out in the middle of nowhere, they plot to kill Joseph. They decide not to kill him and said they want to make some money off of him. So they sell him at a discount to some Ishmaelites heading down to Egypt. They sell him as a slave. They take his coat off And so now Joseph is walking down to Egypt, which is the place of death, and he's naked and he's chained to a camel, and he's walking down there. And if you've been with us in the story, you know that there's a lot of questions that are coming up in the story now, which is, what is God doing here? Because God's given Joseph a dream, and the dream that God's given him is that he's going to be successful, that he's going to have power and authority, and actually his family at one point is going to bow down to him. And now he's walking naked, tied to a camel down to Egypt. And everyone in his family, besides the brothers, are convinced that he's been killed by a wild animal. You're like, God, what are you doing here? How is this going to work out? And we ended with this cliffhanger where it says that he's sold to this man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a captain of the guard, meaning he's a very high-ranking official. He's one of the highest-ranking officials in the Egyptian government. And so you're like, okay, God... What are you, something's happening here. And this is where we pick up the story. It says this, in verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. This is repeated in the entire story. His entire life, you hear this over and over again. The Lord was with him in the pit, 
and in success and everywhere in between, God is with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. You see, Joseph's situation has drastically changed. He had everything going for him before. He had the coat, he had the fortune, he had the promises, he had his father's love, and now he is a slave in Egypt. But something's remained the same. Though his situation has changed, his relationship with God and God's presence in his life has remained the same. God has been with him the entire time. You see, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of setback, in the midst of broken expectations, when we're at places in our life that we want to be, we don't want to be, and the situation has changed, it's easy for us to think that not only has our situation changed, but our situation in regards to our relationship with God has changed too. We think like this, well, well maybe... God's punishing me. Maybe he's judging me. Maybe he's trying to teach me a lesson. Maybe God is unconcerned. Maybe God doesn't care about me. You know, I I look around, I see other people, and their life is going well, and they're achieving the things they want to achieve, and they have the things in life that I want, and I don't have those things, and I've been praying about them, and it's not happening. Maybe God doesn't love me like he loves that person. We believe that because our life is changing in a way that's difficult for us, that therefore our relationship with God has changed. You see, the journey of life is going to be constantly in flux, right? So there's times of clarity, there's times of confusion, there's times where you're running and you're excited and things are great, there's times where you're jogging, there's times where you're crawling. You're, you're barely making it day in, day out. There's times where you're, you're relaxed and you're enjoying your surroundings and there's times where you're fearful and anxious about what tomorrow and the next week and the next month is going to bring. And what we see in the life, life of Joseph is that regardless of your situation, whether you're in the pit or whether you're at the highest level in the position that you have and the opportunities presented to you, that God is constantly with you and your relationship with God never changes. He's always with you, regardless of what is happening in your surroundings. And this is what happens in his life. And so he arrives and he's with Potiphar and, and, and he's just one of a number of servants in Potiphar's house, but Potiphar knows that something's different about Joseph. He realizes that Joseph is not full of despair. He is not broken down. He actually has hope. We, we would not judge Joseph if he was just thinking to himself, I'm done. I'm giving up on life. I'm in Egypt now, separated from my family. My brothers hate me, and I'm a slave. But he doesn't despair. He actually rises up in this situation and he becomes successful. And Potiphar takes notice about his demeanor and his attitude and and his faith. And he elevates him to this position where he is the highest ranking servant in the entire household. Joseph actually ascends to a level where he can actually go no higher given his current situation. And it's interesting what the text says. The text does not say that Potiphar looks at Joseph and says, wow, this man is a supreme human being. I'm going to put him in charge of everything. Instead, Potiphar says that this man loves and trusts in a supreme divine being, and therefore I'm going to put him in charge of all that I have. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, his master saw that Joseph was with him, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Potiphar looks at Joseph and he sees God. He sees that God is with him. And something's different about Joseph. And then he attributes the success of Joseph's endeavors to God working in his life. And so it says that 
in verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him the overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. He puts him to this level that every other servant wants to be in because he notices that there's something different about Joseph, that God is with him, and God is working in his life, and God is blessing him. And so Potiphar says, well, I'm, then I'm going to put him in charge of everything. And so it says, verse 5, from that time he made him the overseer in his house and all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. You see, it's really something important that you pull out of this section in the text, and that's this. God is with you in the pit, and he's with you in your success. He's with you in the valley, and he's with you on top of the mountain. And the reality is, regardless of where you are in your life, in your current situation, he is with you, and he is working in your life, and he is bringing about blessing and success in little things, and sometimes in big ways. And the reality is, when people look at you, and when people see what's happening in your life, do they see God, and they attribute what's happening in your life to God? Or you for yourself because Joseph wasn't claiming it for himself. Joseph did not believe that the blessings that were given to him were for his enjoyment and his enjoyment alone. It, said, it says that what God did in the life of Joseph, the blessings given to Joseph, actually blessed the entire house. Everyone in Potiphar's house was blessed because of Joseph. Because God is the one that gives blessings. We don't earn them. Therefore, we are to attribute them to God and we are to use our blessings to benefit everyone around us. So in the story, you're looking at the situation, you're thinking to yourself, listen, it looked real bad for Joseph last week. I mean, I had a lot of questions about how God was going to reverse things and what was going to happen, but now things are looking better. Maybe Joseph can earn his freedom, which could have been possible. Maybe Joseph can reach a level of authority, and maybe his brothers and his family is going to come visit. I don't know what's going to happen, but this looks good. But this is true of temptation especially. When everything seems like it's going well, there's something waiting in the darkness ready to pounce. You ever felt that, right? Everything's going well. You think to yourself, you know, I don't struggle with that anymore. I don't deal with that anymore. I'm past that. I'm beyond that. Everything's going well, and that's not going to happen again. And then all of a sudden, something rears its head. There's a, a decision, there's a question, there's a temptation that comes and you begin to ask yourself like, oh man, am I going to say yes or am I going to say no? And here's what it, it tells us about Joseph. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good looking dude. I mean, he had it all going on. He was handsome in form and appearance and you know where this is going. Here's what it says. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and he said, lie with me. And she said, lie with me. The Hebrew actually kind of puts it like this. Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph, and she says, I want you to sleep with me right now. Like now. Like we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get together right now. And then it says that he refused and said to his master's wife this, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put, he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater than I in this house. What he's saying is, listen, I've been given this position of honor. Everything is in my charge. 
I am over everything, and even though, yes, he is my master and I am a servant, it feels in the house as if we are equal because I'm in control of everything. I oversee everything. And then he says, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you are his wife. But then there's this next verse that kind of jumps out, and it feels kind of off, and he says, how then can I do this great wickedness against Potiphar, my master? He doesn't say that, right? He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Right? Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph, and she's very short, and she's very aggressive, and she says, I want you to sleep with me right now. And Joseph gives this careful and thoughtful response, and he says, listen, I've been given this position of honor, and everything is, is kind of under my charge in this house, and I've been kept from nothing except for you. And you would expect on this train of thought that he would say, I, I can't do that to your husband. I don't want to sacrifice the relationship that I have with him. I don't want to sacrifice my position because I've reached the highest level position. And I, I don't want to mess that up. He doesn't say any of that. He speaks about his position. He speaks about the reality that he has not been given the ability to engage with her. He's been kept from her. But he says this, how then can I do such a great wickedness and sin against God. You see, the crux of his conviction has nothing to do with his position, that he may lose his job, that his relationship with Potiphar may be messed up. His convictions are founded upon God's word. He's saying, God has given me boundaries, and I'm not going to sleep with another man's wife. That's it's not okay for me, because my convictions and my freedom is contained by God's law. Right, when you hear that, that kind of irks a little bit, right? Freedom and restriction. See, we, we believe that, that freedom and restriction don't go together. Maybe that's one of the issues that you have with God. Maybe it's something you're wrestling through. You think to yourself, you know, I read the Bible. I've read the Bible a couple times. I've come to church. And maybe I've joined a community group, and I'm listening to other people talk, and, and they, they share these things that they say that they read in the Bible, these, these commands and these ways that God has intended for human beings to live, his law, right, his word. And I think to myself, you know, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in that. That is not my truth. That is not my belief. See, the reality is every single one of us in this room, all of our convictions are based upon a law. They're all based upon a law. The question is, are our convictions based upon our law that we've created, or are they based upon God's law that's been given to us? That's the question. And the human tendency for us is to kind of rebel and is to push away God's law. That's our human tendency, or at least the aspects of God's law that we don't like, or we don't want, or we don't believe are good for us because our desire is to be free. So here's our definition of freedom. Here's our cultural definition of freedom. And it's what we believe, if we're all honest, that freedom is the ability for me to do what I want to do when I want to do it. That's freedom. No restriction. No law besides my own law governing my life. And so what happens is, as we kind of live day in and day out, and we make choices, and we make decisions, and we're presented with all these different opportunities, and all these different questions, where we're going to say yes, or we're going to say no, am I going to do this, or am I going to do that? 
we begin to make decisions based upon the law that we've created and written in our own heart. And so if God's law comes into the picture and it disagrees with what we really want and with what we believe we deserve, and if we believe that it's going to be good for us, then we're going to reject and ignore God's law and kind of go on our own path and do our own thing. But freedom and law are not incompatible. We believe they are, but they're not incompatible. Right? All of us have witnessed marriages that are healthy and marriages that are unhealthy. And, and oftentimes the question has been posed, which is, what's the difference? What makes a relationship unhealthy in, in regards to a marriage or a relationship healthy? And, and the answer is, the people in the relationship, it's their view of freedom. How they view freedom. See, when you get married, you take vows, so you get up on an altar and you stand before this group of witnesses and you make these vows and what you're saying is that we are now, both of us, coming together to accept and to affirm a law that we are going to follow in this relationship. And one of the aspects of that relationship, one of the aspects of that vow that you're making, that law that you're having as the center of your relationship is that you're going to be faithful. Right? You're going to have eyes for that person. You're going to have a heart for that person. You're going to have a mind for that person only. You're not going to engage physically with another person. You're not going to overly engage emotionally with another person. You are committed to that person faithfully in an intimate relationship unlike any other. And when you gather together at a wedding, it's a public display that you are submitting to a law together. It's a public display that you are saying, yes, I'm a free person, but I am restricting my freedom, and I believe that's good. Right? If, if you're in a relationship with somebody and they say, listen, I want to get married, but I just want to say this from the beginning. I love you, but I want you to know because I'm a free person, I reserve the right to go on dates with other people. I reserve the right to love other people. I reserve the right to sleep with other people. I reserve the right to have kids with other people. I reserve the right to do whatever I want with other people and in whatever way I want, but don't worry, I love you. You're not going to be in a relationship with that person, right? And if you decided to, it's not going to end well. It is not a good decision. You see, freedom and restriction or freedom and law are not incompatible. Actually, there's great joy found in restriction to your freedom and restriction actually protects your freedom. We live in a free country, but this country has laws. And one of those laws is do not kill someone. And this is good. This is a good law. It protects your freedom, not only because if you kill someone, you're going to go to prison, but also because if you kill someone, people that love them are probably going to come after you. And it's going to mess with your mind. It's going to destroy the way that you process and think because it's not an a good and an easy thing to do to take another person's life. And so we have this law that says don't kill people. You don't sit there and say, well, I'm free, so I can do whatever I want. That's a good law. Your restriction there is good. Freedom and law are not incompatible, but we deem them incompatible when a law conflicts with our desires. That's when it's incompatible. This is the heart of temptation, right? Temptation strikes at that part of us that says, I don't know if I really agree with that. 
I don't know if I really agree with God's word in that regard. I don't know if I really agree with God's law in that regard, right? Temptation says this to you. Temptation says, listen, you're free. Ignore that. You believe that's good for you. You believe that's going to create flourishing. You believe that's going to produce great things in your relationship. You believe that's going to be fun. You deserve it. Temptation's like the serpent in the garden saying, did God really say that? Temptation says this, listen, don't believe that. That's just cultural. That's for like people 2,000 years ago, but not now. God's trying to unnecessarily keep you from something that you would enjoy, so just kind of pick and choose based upon your own created law. And that's a dangerous place to be. You see, Joseph, as we see here, his convictions and his freedom is contained by God's law because he believes God's law is good and right. He believes the boundaries that God has given him is good and right. And so he's able to constantly refuse Potiphar's wife who's making continual advancements at him. You see, chapter 39 of Genesis causes you to ask this question about yourself, which is, do you believe that God's word is good and right? Do you believe that? Thomas Merton, a scholar and pastor, says that the the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. It's the biggest human temptation to settle for too little. It is so easy just to continue doing what we've always done. It is so easy to be content with how things are because here's, here's the truth. Rejecting temptation and saying no to things that seem fun and enjoyable is not easy. Repentance is hard and difficult. It is so much easier just to kind of blend into the culture and just do what you feel and just kind of go with the flow and not make any kind of changes in your life, but you're settling for too little. And Joseph doesn't settle. He's unwilling to settle. And it would have been easy for him. Listen, it would have been so easy for him because no one would have known. No one. Potiphar's wife's not going to tell anybody because that's going to destroy her relationship with Potiphar and her status in that family and in that community. She's not going to tell anyone, and he's not going to tell anyone. And yet because his freedom is contained by God's word and God's law because he believes it's good and right, he constantly is refusing her advances. It says this in verse 10, and she's spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. That's how temptation is, right? It is constant and it is aggressive. Day after day after day. It's not like you say no one time and then you're like, okay, good, I'm glad I said no, I'm done with that. It's coming back the next hour, the next day, the next week, and it's aggressive. As we read in the text, as Rachel read, it says that he goes in one day and she gets really aggressive. I mean, she gets physical and she grabs him because she wants to sleep with him and he runs out of the room and it, his coat comes off and, and so she's sitting there and she's humiliated and she's angry and so she makes up this lie and she says, listen, Potiphar, you know Joseph who you love and you've made him over everything and you think he can do no wrong because God is with him. Listen, he tried to sleep with me and I have his coat right here. This is Potiphar is infuriated. And he sends Joseph to prison. He was in the pit. And then he was enslaved and taken to Egypt, the place of death. And he rose to success in his situation. And now he's back in the pit again. And what we're going to see 
is that regardless of how his situation changes in his life, God is with him. Because it tells us that when he's in prison, God is with him. And God actually elevates him in prison to the highest level that you could possibly be as a prisoner where he's in charge of everything there as well. You see, sometimes when you say no to temptation, it produces things that are difficult. People are not always going to be okay with it. You may be ridiculed. You may lose opportunity. Because not everybody believes that God's law and his word is good and right. But God is with you, and he's constantly working in your life. And I was reading this text this week, and I was writing in my journal this question. I, I felt like jumped off the page, which is this. How does Joseph constantly say no to Potiphar's wife? How does he constantly say no and fight off that temptation? Is it that he's just a morally strong person? Is it that he's just a person of integrity? Is it just that he was motivated to maintain his success? See, the most important verse in this entire chapter is the one that we read a little bit er earlier where he gives the reason to Potiphar's wife the first time. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, Joseph's love for God is what fueled his convictions. His freedom was contained by God's law because he believed it was good and right. But his love for God is what fueled his convictions, is what gave him strength, is what enabled him to say no. To use a marriage analogy again, you know, when, what, what produces faithfulness in a marriage is not when this one member of the marriage says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to remain faithful because I don't want to compromise my reputation in the city or in this community. What produces faithfulness is not when someone says, you know, I, I, I'm going to remain faithful because I don't want to hurt the kids. What produces faithfulness is not when someone says, you know what, I, I'm going to remain faithful because I just don't really want to deal with the ramifications of adultery. See, if you are in a relationship and if a marriage is founded upon the premise that you don't want to be unfaithful because here's what it may cause, that is not solid ground. You see, solid ground is when the reason that you're faithful is because you love the other person. Love produces faithfulness. And if you're constantly fighting temptation, you're struggling with temptation over and over again, and you're like, man, I cannot say no. I keep jumping into it. I keep struggling with it. The reason that you cannot overcome temptation is not because you have a lack of discipline. It is not because your friend circle it is not because you have all these triggers and all these trolls in your life. It is not because you're dealing with too much stress and too much pressure. It is not because of your intrinsic nature. Those things may be involved. They may play a role, but they're not the issue. We blame them. We make them the issue, but they're not the issue. The issue of struggling with the same thing over and over and over again and being unable to resist temptation, the issue is love. That's the issue. You see, when t someone is tempted to cheat on his or her spouse, the issue is not the spouse. The issue is not the stress. The issue is not the changes in their life. The issue is not their intrinsic nature. The issue is love. Love produces faithfulness, and it's the same with temptation. We fall into temptation time and time again because of a lack of love for God and his word. That's why. 
Joseph responds to Potiphar's wife, who's constantly throwing herself at him over and over and over again. He says nothing about his job. He says nothing about his relationship with Potiphar. He tells, the reason I'm not going to do this is because I will not commit this great wickedness and sin against God. Because I love God. And I believe in his word. Jesus says this. He says in John 1, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Time and time again in scripture, darkness and sin are one and the same, and Jesus and light are one and the same. And Jesus is saying that sin will not overcome himself, that Jesus overcomes sin. So if Jesus overcomes sin, then how do we overcome the temptation to sin? What do you think? Jesus. He tells us this when he speaks about how to pray in Matthew 6. He says, pray like this. Lead us not into temptation, finish it with me, but deliver us from evil. He doesn't say this. Here's how you need to pray. Pray to God, lead me not into temptation, but if you do, I hope I have enough strength to say no. Right? He says, lead us not into temptation, and God, deliver me from evil. Deliverance is from God. Only light can overcome darkness. Only Jesus can overcome sin. You see, falling in temptation is a gospel issue. It is not a personal issue. What makes it, we, we often try to, try to make it personal, right? We, we think to ourselves, here's, here's the reason why I'm falling into temptation over and over again. I don't have any self-control. I have bad friends. I have this boss and this pressure, and that's why I keep cutting corners it's my personality. It's how I was raised. You see, Joseph doesn't say, man, you know, the reason I keep being tempted is because I'm so good looking. <laughs> right? We blame all these personal issues and all these things. So, so the reality is this. You may need more self-control. You may need to change your friend circle. Maybe your upbringing didn't help. Maybe your personality and your proclivities plays a role. Maybe your boss and the pressure doesn't make it any easier. Maybe you're so good looking that you're getting unwanted advances. I don't know. But these things are not to blame. It's not the issue. Falling into temptation is a gospel issue. It is a lack of love for God and his word. You see, belief in the gospel, belief that Jesus has died for your sins, a sacrificial death, he has removed all guilt, all shame, all condemnation, so that you can be perfectly reconciled with God the Father. Because he has died, and he has been buried, and he has risen. And when you believe in that, when you trust in that, that God loves you, and he's forgiven you, and he's not going to love you anymore tomorrow or yesterday, he loves you the same, and he is always with you when you're in the pit and when you're on top of the mountain. And he's working in your life. When you believe that, it awakens in you a love. A love for God and who he is and what he's done. But it's an immature love. That's cultivated in your life. So we say all the time here that you are to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Every single day you are to remind yourself of who God is and what he's done in your life. Why? Because when you remind yourself of who God is and what he's done, that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, that he's working in your life and that he's with you, it deepens and it matures your love for God. And it begins to build in you 
a position and a stance before God and his word where you say, God, I, I do in fact believe that your, your word is good and right and it's gonna bring flourishing in my life. Because you love me, why would you lead me astray? Your boundaries are good, your restrictions are good. I'm going to put as the bedrock of my faith and the bedrock of my decisions my love for you and I'm gonna contain my convictions within your word. See, this is how the Holy Spirit works in you. He produces fruit. It's his fruit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. It's actually the first fruit, and every other fruit flows from that. So you think to yourself, I need more self-control. I need to be kind. I need to be gentle. I need to be good. I need to be faithful. I want to see that in my life. You begin with the gospel. You begin with Jesus. You begin with love of God and who he is and what he's done And as you set your heart and your mind on that, you're going to see the other fruits produced in your life. If you go out this week and you say, you know what, I'm going to be more self-controlled. I'm going to do it on my own power. I'm going to be more self-controlled. You are not going to be more self-controlled. You can change your friend circle. You can say no to the Friday night invitations. You're not going to be more self-controlled. You're going to go out this week and say, listen, I'm going to be more disciplined, Carter. I'm not going to hit the snooze alarm. In fact, I'm going to move the the clock all the way across the room. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to wake up. You're going to get the phone. You're going to throw it against the wall and break it. You're going to go back to sleep for four hours. You ever done that? You wake up. You're going to go this week. You know, I'm going to be kind. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put in my phone a reminder every single hour to be kind to people at the office. And you're going to be mad every time that pops up. See, when we begin to try to overcome temptation in our own power and our own strength, it does not work because we do not have the strength and the power to overcome temptation. It is plucking at your desires, and it is hard to say no. Overcoming temptation is a gospel issue, not a personal issue. I want to close with maybe the most famous verse on overcoming temptation. It's in 1 Corinthians, and... Here's what Paul says. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You read this and what happens? You make it about yourself. Right? You read this and you think to yourself, okay, perfect. God's not going to give me a temptation I can't bear. And he's going to open this door. He's going to provide a way out. And all I got to do is notice where it is. And once I notice where it is, I got to take a step through and then I'm good. Right? Sometimes when you're tempted, you see the door, right? You notice it. And sometimes you have no idea. You're like, how do I get out of this? How many times have you noticed the way out, the way to say no, the way to reject it? And you're like, nah, not going to do that. We make it about our ability to step through the door, and that's not what the text is calling you to see. Who's the main character here? It's not you. It says God is faithful. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and God will open up a door and provide a way out. You're not providing the way out. He's providing the way out, and he's going to bring deliverance. So we make overcoming temptation about ourselves, and it's not about us. See, this is why Jesus had to die for you and me, because we're not good at saying no to temptation. We constantly say yes. 
So overcoming temptation is about realizing that God is with you, that he's working in you, and that God, the Holy Spirit, is producing the fruit of love in you. And as you submit your heart and your mind to the love of God and his word, you're going to see strength arise to say no. And so you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You have to wake up and say, it is important that I read God's word because these boundaries are good for me. They're going to bring flourishing in my life. It is important that I come here on Sunday night expectant and excited to worship and to hear from God's word. It is important that I get together with other people in community and I hear what God is teaching them and I share what's going on in my life. Because the love of God will be deepened in your heart by the power of the gospel and you're going to see God work in you to build up strength to say no to temptation because you realize it's not good because the bedrock of your heart is God's word and his love. Let's pray.